Amen. You may be seated. So last week as we gathered in this place, we studied an interaction between Jesus and a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician by birth. In the eyes of the Jewish people, this lady had everything stacked against her. Not only was she not a Jew, but she was a Canaanite, living in a part of the world that was particularly hostile towards God's people. If ever there was an outsider, this poor woman was it. But she had a great need. She had a daughter that was severely oppressed by a demon. She had heard about the things that Jesus could do. And so she came begging for help, falling at Jesus' feet, calling him Lord, recognizing him as the Messiah. And then as Jesus responded to her, it might have first appeared to us as though he was chasing her away. As he said to her, woman, let the children eat first. It is not right to take the bread of the children and throw it to the dogs. In actuality, this was the test. Jesus was pushing this woman up against it. Would she be offended, turn away, go and seek help somewhere else? Maybe from one of the false gods, the dead God that is not God, God like Baal perhaps. Or would she persist? And she did. She seemed to have a better understanding than the disciples, certainly than the scribes and the Pharisees, of what God was really doing in his redemptive plan. She recognized that salvation had, in fact, come to the Jews, that God had entered into promises with the Jewish people, and that Jesus' priority was to come and proclaim the gospel, proclaim the word of the kingdom of God first to the Jewish people as the Jewish Messiah, the ultimate fulfillment of all these promises. But she recognized that the promise of salvation, that the good news of that gospel, it wasn't intended to stop with Israel, that God's plan from all eternity was to bless Israel, that through her he may bless all the nations. So this woman persisted. She acknowledged this truth and she persisted, settling even for crumbs that would fall from the table. Jesus tells her, because of her great faith, that the thing that she has requested will happen. Go. And as she leaves, she finds her daughter. Well, the demon completely gone, sitting up in her bed. What Jesus was doing here in this story, we talked about this last week. This wasn't just a healing story. This wasn't just a cleansing story. This was a matter of proclamation. Jesus was announcing to the world that truly God shows no partiality. That in any nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That should bring us great hope. Most of us being Gentiles. Most of us being outsiders. That any of us that come with this kind of faith, Faith which recognizes our own lack, which cries out for mercy, not believing we've earned anything, sits at the feet of Christ Jesus, acknowledging him as Lord, that we will be acceptable to God. Just as weeks before he had declared all food clean, he was now declaring all people clean. Now this did not mean that Jesus' focus shifted though. He had come first to the Jewish people. Again, the promises were made to them and those promises are irrevocable. So Jesus would focus the priority of his mission, his preaching mission, to the people there in Israel. And yet last week we found that he ventured out as he met this Gentile woman. He's going to turn back now, head back into Israel where he's going to encounter the Jewish people again. He's going to make that slow, steady march towards the cross where salvation will be won. But we see in this morning's text that he takes a, takes a long route, shall we call it, home. So go ahead and stand to your feet, please, as we... Turn back to Mark chapter 7. We begin in verse 31. 
Then he, that is Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and he said, Ephatha, which is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So it began like this. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So when I was a little boy sitting in big church at South Main Baptist in Houston, I used to spend a whole lot of the time looking in the very back of my Bible at the maps. Now I had no idea what I was looking at. And I had even less of an idea why it should matter. Well, now you, you fast forward 35 years, and I'm the one that's boring little kids to death. And my geology, and my geography, excuse me, still isn't, still isn't great, but I do understand why it matters. You see, when we, when we come to Scripture, we read about people with strange names from thousands of years ago in places that most of us will probably never see with our own eyes. And so if we're not comfortable, these narratives that we read, they can become... When you start to view them like something from the Chronicles of Narnia or Aesop's fables, just nice stories that have a good moral lesson for us, but having no real connection to the world in which we live. And yet as we do the work, as we really do the work of studying and trying to understand who are these people, where did they come from, how is God dealing in their lives, where did they live and serve and worship and die, as we do that work, we realize that God wasn't just giving us some moral code book. He wasn't just telling us nice stories. But rather, God was working throughout the very creation. All that he has made, he is working through his own creation to bring it towards his appointed end. That God wasn't just writing some gospel with a pen. He was writing it throughout the entire cosmos. That every single thing that he has created, every single thing that he sustains, it is all to be used by him according to his sovereign will. His good purposes, that he can work through the stars in the sky, kings sitting on their thrones, armies out in the battlefield, the very footsteps of men and women just like you and I. He wasn't just guiding the pens of the apostles and the prophets, although he did do that. He was working through all the rest of creation to unveil this redemption story that we read today. And the beauty in this, when we come to this point, to recognize that these aren't made up stories to help us learn something. This was God working through real men and women. Just like you and me, we find the hope that he can continue to do that today. That we're not unreachable by God. It wasn't if God stopped his work 2,000 years ago and said, okay, now y'all figure it out from here. He's continuing to work, continuing to move. In real places like Crosby, Texas, just like places like Tyre and Sidon. There's value in the work. There's value in the struggle. And I get it, some of these places, we don't know where they are anymore. We ought to at least put in the effort. And so 
You'll remember from last week that we talked about Jesus and his disciples heading north up into the region, the Gentile region of Tyre. Now they tell us that he moves on to Sidon. Now, Sidon's about 20 miles north of Tyre. So I want you to picture this now. He moves from Tyre and he moves to Sidon. Then it tells us that he goes down along the Sea of Galilee. To do that, he had to go across the Leontes River. He had to go across the Jordan River. Then he has to head south by southeast down by the Sea of Galilee into the Decapolis, these ten Roman cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus makes, basically makes a big horseshoe. And much of this path that he takes, it was over some hilly and some rocky soil. It, this was not easy traveling that these men were doing. By the time it was all said and done, they traveled something like 120 miles. Now, we're not told why Jesus took this meandering route. We're not told why he took his time in traveling. And you may remember that when we studied the feeding of the 5,000, we talked about the fact that it was the Passover. Now, we know that Jesus would lay down his life on the next Passover. So at this point, we are less than a year away from the cross. Time is ticking. In our eyes, time is precious. And yet we see Jesus taking this trip that context clues tell us probably took something, it was weeks, maybe even months, that Jesus spent. Precious time with his disciples. And I believe that that's the key. I believe, while we're not told, I believe that that must be the reason that Jesus was carving out this time. That he could be alone with his disciples. Remember, he was about to entrust the kingdom of God, the news, the word of the kingdom of God, into the hands of these 12 ordinary men. Now he's going to send his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to bring them to a reminder of all that he had said, to show them how they were to teach it, to embolden them to be brave enough to go out and to share this gospel. But this word had to be hidden in their heart. This time was precious. This time was key. To our mind, this may seem like a waste of time. Jesus, shouldn't you have been busy? Shouldn't you have been busy healing more people? Shouldn't you have been busy having more confrontations with the Pharisees? What should you have been doing? It was this. Because we recognize that the Spirit of God and the Word of God always work together. So God was hiding his word as Jesus walked with these men and he taught them and he preached to them about the kingdom. We know how thick-headed they were. They needed this time desperately for what lay ahead. Verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hands on him. So Jesus, as he arrives in the Decapolis, they are greeted by a very familiar scene. You may remember that Jesus has been here before, back in Mark 5. As they traveled across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus calms the storm. They get there in the boat, and then immediately they're met by a madman. A guy absolutely out of his mind. He was possessed by many demons. Legion was their name. He was naked. He was wild. He was uncontrollable. So strong he couldn't be controlled by men. And yet with just a word, Jesus cast these demons from the man into pigs, and they run down the hill into the water. And the man is in his right mind, bringing complete peace from chaos. In his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ, honoring him as Lord, as the one that has set him free. Now, the townspeople, you'll remember, they were terrified. They begged Jesus to leave. But this man, he begged Jesus to allow him to stay. This man begged Jesus, allow me to follow along with you and with your other disciples. But Jesus told him, no, you're going to stay here. Go home to tell your friends. Excuse me, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This first Gentile missionary. Truly, he did his job, and he did it well. So between him, the other townspeople, travelers that had come to and from the Decapolis, news of Jesus had spread far and wide. So just as everywhere else that he went, the crowds flocked to him. Now, Matthew 15, there's not a direct parallel. The text that we read this morning, you won't find a direct parallel to it in Luke or Matthew or John, but you will find, I believe, a summary of it in Matthew 15, because he says this, Matthew 15, 30, talking about his trip to the Decapolis. 
and great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. We've seen this. We've seen this. To the point that you may have grown bored of hearing about Jesus healing people. may have lost its mystery and its wonder. But he's healing these people. The sick, the blind, the lame. They're coming just laying them at Jesus' feet, knowing that just a touch from him can heal them. And in this morning's text, we're told about one specific man, a man that is deaf and has a speech impediment. Just like the paralytic man that was brought to Jesus in Mark 12, it's his friends that carry him there. They've heard about this Jesus, and they know that they can just get their friend to him if he would just touch him or just say a word that their friend would be made whole. Thank God for friends that carry us to Jesus. When we come to them with all manner of problems, their answer is always, let's go to the king. So these men, they bring him, they bring their deaf and, and mute friend, and taking him aside, verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately. So Jesus, he's healing the multitude, just, just masses. I would love to know. I, I wish that God had provided for us a tally of how many people Jesus healed, even in just one day. I mean, it was hundreds, had to have been thousands, I would imagine. How many people had Jesus healed? And this was really... Because of the, the medical age in which we live, we don't understand the groundbreaking nature of this. People weren't really getting healed of stuff back then. Like you'd go to a doctor and they would just kind of manage the illness. There were, very, there were a whole lot of illnesses in that day that were a death sentence. There was no real way to extend your life. You just tried to manage the pain until the end. And yet here comes Jesus Christ and he's healing people completely. As if they had never been sick. Immediately standing up and walking. Fevers immediately leaving them. I'd, I'd love to know just how many people have a story like this guy about Jesus healing. But he calls this guy aside. It reminds us of the, the woman with the bleeding problem. He takes special notice throughout all this crowd, all the people that were getting healed, he takes special notice, special attention to this one man, and he calls him aside, away from the crowd. And we're not told why. Was it because he wanted to show to this man and to us that you're a real person? You're not just some mass of humanity. You know, you'll notice that sometimes when I pray, and I will pray for the lost, and then I will catch myself, because I don't ever want to view the lost as just some blob of people. Recognize that these are real people, made in the image of God, that he has love for them, that he has provided for them, and cared for them, and carefully crafted them in their mother's womb. So is he perhaps showing that this was a man? I recognize you specifically, not just some big blob of people? Was it to give him privacy for what came next? We don't really know. But he takes the man aside from the crowd privately. He puts his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, he touches his tongue. Jesus shows his compassion for people by touching them. People long to be touched. We've sensed this during this, during this pandemic, right? As people couldn't hug, as people couldn't shake hands. I remember the first person Amanda hugged kind of out of the quarantine was Missy McKeon. And if I remember rightly, she just slobbered all over your shoulder crying, right? Like she just, she just wanted to hug somebody, right? Outside of my house, can I go hug somebody? We long for contact like that. And Jesus didn't just sit up on a mountaintop and throw down lightning bolts. He didn't just wish people well from afar. He came to them, and he touched them right where they were broken. Now, the scene is a strange one. The way in which Jesus heals, we're going to see something kind of similar to this when we get to Mark 8, is he meets a blind man there, and he does something similar with spitting and laying his hands on the guy's eyes. But here he puts his fingers, puts his fingers in the man's ears. And then he spits. It would appear as though he had to have spit probably on his hand. And then he touches the man's tongue. And we aren't provided with any real explanation for what Jesus was doing. We know that the power is in Christ. We know that this wasn't magic. 
We know this wasn't some spell that we can then just go and do on our own and run around healing all the deaf people of the world. We know that the power is there. And we, d we do know, though, that in that part of the world, people believed that there was some type of healing, some type of medicinal properties to spit. I guess like a dog licking their wounds, perhaps. But we also know that for the Jewish people, spittle, just like every other bodily secretion, it was viewed as something that was, that was unclean. So we don't really know why Jesus did this. But it seems to me as if he was doing, he was healing this man with, with big gestures, with big, bold gestures, because the guy couldn't hear him speak. John MacArthur said that this was an early sign of form of, uh, early form of sign language, perhaps. So the guy would recognize, I'm about to heal your ears. I'm about to loose your tongue. We don't know why he did it this way, but he did. Verse 34, and looking up to heaven, he sighed, and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. So he looks to heaven. We routinely see Jesus looking to heaven, making clear to this man. This man can see him as he looks to heaven. He looks to heaven. He says, my healing is from heaven. This is the work of God, not the work of man. The power is not in spittle. The power is not in fingers going into your ears. This power, this healing, it comes from God. It comes from heaven. We see him doing this before many of his acts, showing his fellowship and communion with the Father. And then he looks up to heaven and he lets out a sigh. Stenazo was the Greek word. It's also translated as groaning elsewhere. Paul uses this word, this word for groaning, this word for a deep sigh. He uses it in Romans 8, 22. He's talking about, he's talking here about the way that we're to endure in the middle of suffering, how we're to endure in a world just shrouded in sin, how to, we're to endure in the middle of pain through this lifetime in light of future glory. And he says this, Romans 8, 22, for we know that the whole creation has been growing together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Just like the whole of creation, we groan. We groan because we know this isn't the way God created it to be. We groan under the weight of sin. We feel the wages of that sin, even in our body. When we get out of bed in the morning and our knees pop and our back aches, we're reminded we live in a fallen world. We are self-sinners. We have created this absolute mess. So then this deaf man, this man that could not speak, he was seeing the problem with sin. He was seeing the wages of sin, even in his own body. Now we know that it wasn't some specific sin in this man's life or his family's life that caused this. It was the effect of living in a fallen world. And so we groan. Do you sense that? We often talk about what heaven will be like. I hope you think often about what heaven will be like. And we think about all the great things that are going to be there. We think about the, the, the lack of pain in our body. We think about the peace and the unity and all this. But, beloved, I pray that more than anything else, you long to be in a place where there is no more sin, where you're not tempted anymore to sin, where that constant pull, that constant fleshly pull towards sin. And so we, we groan. We groan. Even though we've only... Tasted but a bit of it, right? Even, as, even though we've never lived in a world that wasn't tainted by sin, even though we ourselves have never lived lives that were not tainted by sin, we know enough of it. As those that have been sealed with the Spirit, those that have the promise of eternity, those that have just had glimpses of glory, we know what lies ahead. Even though it's just, even though it's just a faint picture to us now, we groan. He goes on in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 2-4, we read again these words from Paul. For in this tent we groan. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, 
Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that in this mortal, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. We groan for a new body. We groan to be out of this body and into something new. We don't want to just float around like spirits. We want to be in our new glorious body, a body like Jesus Christ. And so we groan. And we see Jesus here coming to this man, sticking his fingers in his ears, putting spittle on his tongue, healing him, looking to heaven, and groaning, letting out a groan because he can relate to us in the groaning, in the sighing. You think about how much we long for heaven, and we've never been there. You think about how much we long to be in a world that's not touched and tainted by sin, and we've never been there. Christ Jesus left the glories of heaven, a perfect place of perfect love, and he came and subjected himself to the weight of sin, taking that burden even into his own body. Jesus wasn't supposed to have knees that ate. He wasn't supposed to have a back that was sore. He wasn't supposed to feel the weight of the sins of the world coming against him. And he did it lovingly, willingly, as had been ordained before the very beginning of time, knowing that this was the way that salvation would come, through great suffering and pain, that he can relate to us, that he can sympathize with us. And he shows this in this moment as he looks up to heaven, as he sighs, lets out a sigh, a groan, and he says to the man, Ephatha, that is, be open. This is probably an Aramaic word, Ephatha. If, if you say words with the P-H and the T-H sound, the and the those are very easy words to read in my lips. I tried that out this week. I recorded myself saying Ephatha, and I sent it to some people, and I said, don't turn the sound up. Try to guess what I said, and it was about 85%. Even though it's not a word that we ever say, you can see the and the Surely this man recognized what Jesus was saying, even without being able to hear him. He says, Ephatha, be opened. It says it immediately, his ears were open, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Has the picture of loosing something, loosing your tongue, a tongue that was once tied, that was once chained, now it's loosed, and immediately begins talking plainly. There's no need for speech therapy. There's no need to ease into it. We don't know whether this guy had been deaf since birth, whether he became deaf as a child, whether he became deaf later in life. We don't know. But immediately he speaks plainly. Again, Jesus doesn't heal halfway. It's immediate. It's unexplainable. There's no natural explanation for what he's done. And immediately he's speaking. And then I believe what we see in this picture, right, is Jesus calls this man to the side. He opens up his ears. He gives him a tongue which is loose, which can speak. I can't help but think about what he's doing with the disciples, constantly calling them aside. Routinely throughout this gospel, we have referred to his phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. We've talked about the fact that man cannot have ears to hear or tongues to speak rightly about him unless he intervenes. Unless he does a work. That we too were people with ears that didn't work and tongues that didn't work. At least not rightly. Physically they did. Physically they heard the exact same words. And they may have been able to mimic the right words. They may have been able to sing the right songs of praise. But unless Christ Jesus intervenes, unless he calls you to side, opens your ears, opens your mouth, lets you loose, you cannot hear rightly. You cannot sing like rightly. You cannot speak rightly about him. And at the same time, we're reminded of the fact that there's nobody that's too far gone. This guy was deaf. His tongue didn't work. And it was nothing. Jesus Christ didn't break a sweat. It was nothing for Christ Jesus to loosen this man's tongue and open his ears. And he can do the same for us. Those that would come humbly... Those that know to ask, he says, I will give you ears to hear. I'll give you a tongue which confesses. 
Verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen this call from Jesus to tell some people to be quiet, to not go out and tell the world what it is that he's done. Now, there are exceptions. Remember the man from the Decapolis, the demoniac from the Gerasenes. You remember that Jesus told him, no, I want you to go tell everybody. But for the most part, he would tell people that they need to be silent. Don't go tell anybody. And we're not told explicitly why this is. So in the early 1900s, there was a German philosopher named Wilhelm Reed. And this guy believed that Jesus knew that he wasn't the Messiah. Not only was Jesus not the Messiah, but he knew he wasn't the Messiah. And that Mark and the other gospel writers, that they just created this fantasy. That they just trumped up these statements that Jesus had made. Sensationalized him. Declaring him to be the Messiah. And that then, they had to explain away the reason why so few people actually followed him. Why so few people during his earthly ministry actually endured with him to the end. And so they said, well, you know what? Mark made up these statements. Mark made up these statements that Jesus had told people, shh, this is a secret. And that that's the way he explains the reason that people don't come to Jesus as the Messiah because he was never the Messiah. That you'll often hear this referred to as the messianic secret. But as you read through the Gospels, as you read through these stories, you see pretty quickly the earthly and spiritual reasons behind what Jesus is doing here. Think back to when he cleansed the leper. As he cleansed the leper and he tells him, go and show yourself to the priest. Go offer the sacrifice that is required, but don't talk to anybody else. We read this in Mark 1, 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. That Jesus knew that his word of his healing ministry traveled out. That access to him and his ability to move about was going to be restricted, greatly restricted. So it's just a practical matter. It's an earthly matter. He knew that we need to keep this as much as possible. I need you to not go out and spread this news. In addition to this, he knew that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were all seeking to destroy him. And he knew that as the fervor, the political fervor surrounding their idea of what the Messiah was going to be, as that traveled, they were going to be pushing for his death before the appointed time. So you may believe that at times that is why Jesus would say within the Jewish areas to remain quiet, but maybe he would go to a Gentile land and say, you may talk. You may go and spread it. But this guy was in the Gentile region. So what gives? Why did Jesus tell him to be quiet? I believe that there's another, a much more subtle reason. You remember when Jesus healed the five, uh, excuse me, when he fed the 5,000? You remember that they chased him down the next morning. And it, was their, it was their determination that they were going to take him as their king, even by force, if that's what was necessary. But as they caught up to Jesus, you remember that instead of receiving their nomination as their king, he confronted them with some tough teaching. He confronted them with the reality that he had not just come to fill bellies. He had not just come to perform miracles. He had not just come to make their life easier. He hadn't just come to set them free from Rome. That his job, his mission, his purpose in coming to earth was not just to make their life more comfortable. He pushed them up against the reality that his battle was a spiritual one. That they needed to be joined with him and that what he had come to do was to destroy the works of the devil. He'd come to take upon himself the sins of men. To fulfill all righteousness and then to make a trade. To make a trade. And he knew though. He knew that the people couldn't grapple with this. He knew that they couldn't understand that all that he had promised, that all that he had come to accomplish, it was going to be accomplished through great suffering and great sacrifice. He was pointing the people forward to the cross. And he knew that before the cross had come, remember at this point the cross had not yet come, he was marching towards it. And without the cross, he knew the gospel wasn't going to make any sense. Even worse than that, he was going to win people that thought they had the real gospel, but they never saw the reality. That they thought Jesus was nothing more than a miracle worker. That a man that could provide bread. That a man could make their life easier. We've seen this problem throughout the lives of these crowds. They would come to him, and the minute that he challenged them, the minute that he pushed them up against the reality of their sin, 
The minute he called them to something like repentance, they weren't so interested anymore, and they would wander away. They much preferred the gospel that said, come to Jesus and get a bunch of good stuff. That's why the crowd would dwindle down. And we see even amongst his disciples an inability to grasp this. You'll remember that we're looking forward to Mark 8. We should get there in a couple of weeks where, God willing, where um, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, and then Jesus immediately begins to preach about his crucifixion and his resurrection. And what's Peter's response? Forbid it, Lord. It's never going to happen. You remember how sharply Jesus rebuked him. Get behind me, Satan. But Peter couldn't understand. He couldn't understand at that moment the reality that Jesus hadn't just come to be an earthly king, that he hadn't just come to provide good things. He hadn't just come to make people's life easier. He had come to suffer and to die. Even tougher to grapple with than that is the reality that we too must follow him in this death. We must carry our own cross. We must deny ourselves. That we must die to ourselves. We see this crossless gospel, this empty gospel preached today. We see it all throughout this country. As people preach this gospel that just revolves around all the good things that Jesus is going to do for you. Failing, completely refusing to, to confess the sin that has led to Jesus' death. We love the idea that Jesus loved us enough to die. But we hate to confess the reality that our sin was so deep. That our sin was so deep and we were so far separated from God that it took his only begotten son dying in our place. That that was the only way of reconciliation. That was the only way that we could be redeemed and set free. We don't like that. So we continue to preach this gospel. Come to Jesus and it'll make your life easier. Come to Jesus and it'll give you health. Come to Jesus and it'll give you wealth. Never wrestling with true repentance. Never asking for any kind of transformation. Not embracing the Jesus that died on the cross and not embracing what that what that means in our life. And what you'll find in many of these circles is a prayer life that is void of any call, any, any request, any prayer that calls out for transformation in our lives. You'll sense in these people, there, there'll be this prayer and you'll, you'll find that there's no confession in the prayer. Oftentimes there's no adoration for God in the prayer because you see, when you see God rightly, when you see God as glorious, when you see God as infinitely holy, you can't help but see your own filth. You can't help but see your own sin. And so you'll find in these prayers that they don't truly adore God the way they should. They don't praise him the way they should. They don't confess their own sin the way they should. They don't pray for transformation in their, in their life the way they should. Instead, their prayer list is nothing but a bunch of heal me. Heal me. Provide for me. Give me. Meet my needs. Focus on me, God. You sense that in their prayer life, just like the crowd. These stagnant, lifeless believers never truly never truly recognizing exactly what jesus came to do because they don't view him through the lens of the cross and so jesus tells this man like many others you're not to go out you're not to go out and tell anybody but that never works you don't know what one commandment jesus gives that nobody ever obeys the one that don't don't go tell people that what i just did for you you don't know how a man is transformed he can't shut up about jesus when Jesus actually comes into your life and he touches you where you are, he touches you where you're broken, he heals you, he transforms you, not just physically but spiritually, you can't shut up about it. Angels from heaven couldn't hold you back. But we see time and time again that people just won't shut up. Jesus tells them, would you be quiet? Look, I know you're Lord. I know you're the Son of God. I know you're the Christ. I know you demand obedience. I can't do it. I can't keep my mouth shut. I'm that annoying guy that wants to tell everybody about what Jesus has done in my life. 
That's the case with this guy. Verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He has done all things well. I'm not a tattoo guy. But if I was going to get a tattoo across my upper back, it would probably be this. Jesus has done. He is doing. He always does all things well. There is no lack. There is no you do what you can do and then Jesus does the rest. There is no Jesus does what he can do and then we carry the rest. He does it all. And he does it all well. Infinitely. Surpassingly. Well. These people had no idea the doxology they were singing on that day. They had no idea the depths of what they were confessing. They were just reacting to what was in front of them. I've talked before about the about the reality that my job, I believe, I believe that my job as a pastor, at least on Sunday morning in this pulpit, is just to show you the word. There's a fancy word, it's exposition. I'm just supposed to take this word and bring it out, put it before you, and then watch with the Holy Spirit how it brings you to react. I shouldn't have to jump up and down and beg you to worship. I shouldn't have to jump up and down and plead with you for obedience. I shouldn't have to jump up and down and pray and, 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 and prod you to love Jesus. If I put him on display rightly, if I take his word and I put it before you, those that are transformed, those that have ears to hear and eyes to see, you can't be held back. And these people, these pagans, these Gentiles, they see Jesus on, on display. They see his work. They can't help but respond. He does all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. This was promised to the Messiah. For hundreds of years, they had been looking for a Messiah that would come and heal the lame and cause the deaf to, to hear and the, and the mute to speak. Now, there has to have been one particular Old Testament passage that Mark had in mind as he wrote these words, and that's Isaiah 35. And I'll show you why I'm confident of that. If you look back in verse 32 where you read, the man was deaf and had a speech impediment. The word there, speech impediment, in Greek, is mogilalon. That word is used nowhere else in the New, New Testament. The only place that you will find that one. Now, in verse 37, you're going to see the word mute. The word mute there is alalus. Mark uses that word several times. But mogilalon, you won't find it anywhere else in the New Testament. The only place that you will find it is in Isaiah 35. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But the Bible that Jesus and his contemporaries would have studied was a Greek translation called the Septuagint. And you will find in the Septuagint right there in Isaiah 35 that word. Now, Mark doesn't refer to the Old Testament, and he doesn't quote the Old Testament nearly as much as Luke or Matthew. And so, as one commentator says, when Mark uses the Old Testament in his writing, that statement is likely a load-bearing statement, and we need to pay, pay attention. Whenever Mark refers to the Old Testament, it should send up our antennas. There's something special here. There's something he's trying to show us. So, in Isaiah 35, in the lead-up to Isaiah 35, what we see is God speaking through the prophet, and he is speaking judgment and destruction upon the nations because of the evil. He is speaking a warning to his people that they are going to be dragged away because they have followed after a false religion. They have fallen into idolatry. And yet at the same time, there's a message of hope there. He's delivering a message of hope to the faithful remnant, to those that by the power of God's Holy Spirit have held fast to the faith. They've come to true saving faith in the Lord. He has promised for these people a day of restoration, a day when all things would be made right. That this promised word would come. And we see that in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 says this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap 
like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, that's Mogilalan, the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For hundreds of years, people of Israel had longed for this day. Now you remember that God allowed them to be dragged off into exile, that he had raised up a people called Babylon, that he would discipline the people of Israel. They would take them off into exile, but he had promised that they would come back. So now by Jesus' day, they're back. They're back in the land that God had promised. The temple is rebuilt. The temple that was destroyed has now been rebuilt. But things aren't what they're supposed to be. Because yes, they're in their hometown. Yes, they're in their home country. But they're living under the rule of a pagan king from Rome. And yes, the temple is rebuilt. But the glory of the Lord has not returned the way it had in days of old. They knew that this wasn't what it was supposed to be. This couldn't be the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise through Isaiah. And so surely there were times when they wondered, has God failed? Has God failed or has he given up on us as his people? You ever feel that way? You know the promises of Scripture. You know the things that God has said in his word, and you want to believe deep down that God is a God who keeps promises, so surely that must mean then that you've done something to disqualify yourself. Surely you must have done something to lose favor with God. Dear, dear friends, let me remind you, you didn't do anything to commend yourself to God. Therefore, you cannot do anything to lose the salvation that he's promised. That's the beauty in this. People find themselves terrified at the idea that God is the one who chooses. That man doesn't just wake up one day smarter and say, I choose God today. You know what? Today's the day. Mom's really been on my butt. I think today's the day I'm going to believe in Jesus. It doesn't work that way. But it terrifies people the thought that God is the God who chooses. But beloved, this is the flip side to that. That when you didn't earn your own salvation... When he chose you and you didn't choose him, you don't lose it either. And so these people, they had been looking around wondering, well, what's happened then? Why isn't this thing coming true? Why aren't things the way that they were supposed to be? The temple was greater before. Why isn't it the same now? And what they see in Jesus Christ is the assurance that that day has come. Remember, John the Baptist came before him. They had been told that a great prophet would come before the day of the Lord, and that, that prophet would be calling men to repent. That's what John the Baptist had done. He had called men to repent. You need to repent. You need to make straight the road. You need to prepare your heart. And then here comes Jesus Christ, inaugurating this thing, healing the lame, giving sight to the blind, opening the ears of the deaf, loosing the tongue of those that cannot speak. The kingdom of God was at hand, and yet it would not be ultimately fulfilled until a second coming, that there's an even greater promise on the horizon. Now, I've talked about this a lot. I've talked about it a lot, and I'm going to be honest with you. I've talked about it so much that I may have lost some of my own awe, some of my own wonder about what it is that is coming in the day of the Lord. When judgment comes upon the nations, when destruction comes to the wicked, to those that have been found dead in their sins, but the promises of what awaits those of us that are his. We talked last week about the fact that it's not just going to be crumbs from a table. It's going to be a feast like we've never had. To see Jesus Christ face to face as he really is in all his glory. And to be completely transformed. The peace. Are y'all tired of fighting? I'm exhausted. I'm not a, I'm not a combative guy. Mo sometimes, mostly. But I'm just tired, man. I'm tired of not being at peace. I'm tired of getting mad on the, at the dude on the road that cuts me off. I'm tired of getting mad at the person that disrespects me. I'm tired of getting mad at the people that hurt my family. I'm tired of getting mad at the people that attack my church. I'm tired of getting mad at the wolves that pretend to come in and love the sheep. I, I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of being in battle. 
I long for the day of peace. When that trumpet sounds and he returns and all things are the way he designed them to be. And no longer is my own sin pulling at my heart. No longer am I living under the consequences of my own sin. Man, I long for that day. And the times I feel myself not longing for that day, I realize that it's because I've tried to make this place into heaven. That's what these people wanted, right? Jesus, just keep healing us. Just keep giving us bread. Just come and be our king and free us from the Romans. We, that, that's the American dream, right? That's the American gospel. That the kingdom of God is nothing more than us making this heaven right now. Not knowing that we're meant to be looking forward to something else. That we suffer and we endure today in light of that promise. And so we see here that Jesus is ushering in this kingdom. A foretaste of something that's much greater. And so as we, as we study this man, the story, of the, the story of this deaf man that has been made well, I, th- I think there's three layers to it. I think, we, I think if we unfold it like an, or, or peel it back like an onion, we find three layers. Number one, we find just the incredible love and compassion of Christ Jesus as he comes to us where we are. We see him as he touches the unclean people. He hangs out with the sinners. He comes to us right where we are and he touches us. Not afraid of your filth. Not afraid of your sin. Not afraid of your past or your upbringing or any of the rest. That he comes and touches us. In addition to that, we're reminded that we need more than physical healing. Reminded that he brings more than physical healing. That he's not just a genie that meets all our immediate earthly needs. That what he comes to offer is something so much greater. That more than ears that can physically hear and a literal tongue to be loosed. We need to be able to hear his word rightly. As sad as it might be to die and having never heard the voice of the people that you love. How much worse would it be to die having never rightly heard the word of God? As sad as it may be to have a tongue that was never loosed enough to tell the people that you loved how much you loved them. How much worse would it be to never rightly be able to sing praises to the living God? We see that he's come and he's touched us where we are, literally, physically, he's touching us where we are. But then in addition to that, that he's, he's, he's awakening us spiritually. And then lastly, he gives us a glimpse. Gives us a glimpse of what's to come. You know, churches in old, they sang about heaven a lot. And I think that's because life was hard. I think that was because back then you had ten babies and you were lucky if five of them made it past ten years old. And we have so insulated ourselves that we've lost our anticipation of heaven. We've lost our anticipation of what's come, or maybe we've grown weary of waiting. Maybe in our groaning and in our sighing, we believe that he's never coming back. We've just given up that this is just all that there is. But beloved, I pray that as you look at this man, as you study this scripture, as you behold the living God, I pray that you feel that swelling up within you. I pray that as we sing these songs this morning, the songs that we just sang, the songs that we're going to sing, the songs that will be running through your head as you walk out of this place, I pray that you recognize the reality that you are joining in eternity. The angels in heaven right now are doing that very same thing. They probably sound better. But that we're joining along with them in this. You're preparing for your eternity and participating in it at the same time. And I don't know why anybody would throw that away. It's good to have a full house today too, by the way. I'm glad to have glad to have you guys here. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that 
there's not a one of us in this room that is unreachable. There's not a one of us in this room that is too far gone. There's not a one of us in this room that is beyond your reach. So, Father God, you are a God who receives any who come to you in fear with a proper awe and a proper reverence in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his atoning death, Father. We confess that we are sinners. We confess that that sin has completely and totally separated us from you. That were it not for your Son taking that sin upon himself, dying the death that we deserve on a sinner's cross, then raising again to prove that sin and death and Satan had been defeated, that, Father, we would remain separated. So, Father, if there's one here this morning that's not yet wrestled with that, that has not yet confessed Jesus as Lord, not yet truly repented, Father, would you stir in their hearts now? We know that we don't have it in ourselves, that it requires your intervention, your activity, your regeneration, your new birth. It is our deepest desire to see that happen now. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.